Thanks so much, Dan. Good morning to you. It's so wonderful to be here on the Lord's Day. And it's even more thrilling for me to say to you, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. <laughs> Luke 9. That's right. We are headed back into our study of the Gospel of Luke. Been out for several months doing all kinds of wonderful studies. But we find ourselves back in Luke in this great account of the Lord Jesus Christ and His earthly ministry, and it just thrills our hearts to be studying for the lessons that we extract from the life of our Lord as the disciples were learning them. In other words, when we watch the Lord's life unfold in the pages of the gospel, His disciples, the true disciples, were learning the very lessons that we are called to learn. The thing that, of course, we notice in the life of the Lord is, is that at times the the grief and struggle and frustration would overwhelm him singularly because of the unbelief of human beings, particularly unbelief in those that knew better. God most grieves over unbelief. From the time he made Adam as his creature with whom he wanted to commune and to love and with whom he had pure fellowship and pure holiness and interaction from the time when Adam and Eve had their hearts fill up with unbelief and they didn't trust God the Father. They didn't trust the limits he placed on them, which was merely one among a life of liberation and freedom and holy communion with him. When they didn't trust his words and his revelation, when they didn't walk with him in such a way that they they just trusted his character and his person as their intimate creator. It grieved him, and from that time on, and everyone who's ever been born having a fallen heart, it grieves God most to see unbelief, to see unbelief. Every generation that collectively begins to suppress the truth and unrighteousness in a way that that unbelief captivates an entire generation of people, that's what grieves God most. And in fact, There are moments in the life of our Lord where he expresses that grief spontaneously. And it's because it was on his heart most. When I return, are there going to be people who believe? You remember in Luke 18, he gives that great parable in the first eight verses about the woman who keeps coming and she's relentlessly pursuing. She needs her case adjudicated. She keeps pursuing the official, the judge. And by sheer persistence, the judge adjudicates the case. And Jesus says, look, will will not your heavenly Father who loves you deal kindly with you and mercifully with you and, and adjudicate your case and hover over your life and care for your life and the things that matter most? Will he not do that? He will do that, the Lord says. He'll do it swiftly. The son will return. You will have perfection, there will be glory when your Savior returns, but, Jesus asks in verse 18 of that chapter, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What kind of question? Will he find faith? Will he find that God's people believe? Why such a grieving question? Because there were moments when even his own people, surrounded by a culture of those who were corrupted and did not believe, when his own people who knew better 
at times became weak? Do people believe God? Are people full of faith or are they faithless? That was the issue on the Lord's heart. In fact, he had said that from the outset of his preaching ministry. Mark 1, 15, repent and believe. Be a believer. Follow me and believe. He would ask people that question. Matthew 9, 28, he'd come into the house. The blind men came up to him and Jesus said, do you believe that I'm able? That was the issue. He was able to heal. He would heal. He did often heal, whether they believed in him or not. But he wanted to know as he drew people's hearts out, do you believe I'm able? Do you believe I'm a good God and that I have the power to do this? Mark 5, 36, Jesus was overhearing what was being spoken in and around the synagogue and the synagogue official, he told him, don't be afraid any longer, only believe, trust, trust me, (laughs) believe me. Mark 9, 42, Jesus gives a warning, if you Know a disciple who believes Jesus and puts their simple faith in Christ and they love Christ and he's worthy and they love him sincerely in real faith and you take that little one and you cause that little believer to stumble in their faith. You dumb down their faith. You cause their faith to turn to unbelief. You take a real believer and you stumble their faith. You make it weak faith. You, You strip it of all that's genuine because you desire your own will. You go against God, Jesus says, and his better for you to, to be drowned than to face God right then and there. When your own unbelief distorts the truth and weakens someone else's sincere faith, you're in serious trouble with the King of Kings. And that's why at times Jesus expressed grief, deep grief over the rampant nature of unbelief. You're to nurture faith. You're to nurture it in your own life by the truth of Christ, by the worthiness of Christ. You're to nurture the seeds of real faith in another person so that it becomes a deep-rooted stock. That's what's most precious to the Lord. You parents, you grandparents, those little seeds of faith you see in those little ones, you're to nurture it. You're not to cause it to stumble because you don't want to believe God. So sometimes... Grief and, and righteous frustration and anger came over the Lord as he would see lives destroyed by hardened unbelief. And it was the case at times when he would give a stinging rep- reproof to his closest disciples. What's, what's with your faith? Where is it? Despite seeing all of his power, despite seeing his glory, just hours and hours before even this event that we're going to study this morning, the disciples were frequently without strong faith. We might say faithless. We don't mean that their conversion faith was taken away. That can't be lost. But what we do mean is that they, they didn't pay attention and began to fear. They didn't pay attention to the power of Christ, the worthiness of Christ that they'd seen. And they began to fear. And they began to allow fearful thoughts to take root and strangle the will. And they began to entertain questions about God's perfect knowledge And they began to entertain doubts about his moment-by-moment care of their life and his power to work for our spiritual best. And they began at times to rest on earthly solutions rather than God's character. 
and they would stop casting their anxieties on the Lord. That's what we find here in this text. What an amazing section. Jesus had been on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. You know that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But follow along as I begin in verse 37 of Luke 9 and read through verse 45. On the next day, that is to say when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they wouldn't perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the statement. Now what you have here is another crowd most of whom had been there before he went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. It's interesting here that they are in some sort of interaction at some point, Mark's gospel tells us, but Luke omits that. Luke omits that because he is basically trying to pull the mountain experience right alongside the valley experience or the time down with the people. And that is because on the mountain... The glory of Christ was manifested. The affirmation of the Father was given verbally. Moses was there to link Jesus with the great prophet so that Jesus would be the mediator of a new covenant as Moses was mediator of the old covenant. And the other prophet, Elijah, was there. Peter and James and John saw Elijah. That linked Jesus, the Messiah, with the prophet who rebuked Israel for their unbelief. So Jesus would be the one who would also now say to Israel at present, you're in unbelief and judgment is coming. So they saw his flesh peeled back. They peered right into the personhood of Christ, his absolute blazing glory. The cloud, the glory cloud came down, connecting him with the glory of God ultimately and the affirmation of the divine voice. Listen, this is my beloved son. Hear everything he says and obey it. Then Moses is there worshiping Jesus. Elijah is there worshiping Jesus. So the glory on the mountain was unprecedented in its visual, in its affirmation, in its majesty. And Luke takes that experience and just eliminates a conversation that the other gospels refer to that Jesus had with Peter, James, and John when they came down from the mountain. They asked about Elijah, and they got to have their theology cleared up. And so... Matthew and Mark record that they talked about Elijah and Jesus cleared up their theology and talked about John the Baptist. None of that is recorded by Luke because he wants to get past all those details as they come down from the mountain and get right to the fact that they had seen majesty on high and, and yet the nine disciples down below were not experiencing any majesty on their own. They weren't. And we'll see the reason for that 
It is interesting that Mark's gospel, and you have, to, you have to note this, Mark's gospel says that there was a debate already going on. Luke simply says that a great multitude met Jesus when he returned from the mountain. Mark's gospel says that a debate had been going on because as Jesus arrives, he sees the other nine in a heated exchange with the scribes. How did the exchange come about? Well, Jesus, as you know, had gone to that mountain with Peter, James, and John. He left the nine there, and he told them, no doubt, I want you to proclaim. Proclaim the good news. Keep the gospel ministry going till we get back. Keep preaching the gospel. And we can imagine that they were fairly ramped up by this particular point, having been left with the responsibility of the ministry on their own, and they're waiting for Jesus and the inner three, Peter, James, and John, to come back from the mountain. They have a huge responsibility. Probably nervous, but plenty ramped up. They could be bold because they already witnessed Jesus' power on many occasions. He'd, just, he'd fed an entire multitude with one lunch. He'd cast out a bunch of demons. He healed all kinds of diseases. He'd walked on water already. They'd seen all this. They were, they were ready to take on some responsibility in the ministry. And every time Jesus came in contact, face-to-face, or a confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus had shut them down with divine wisdom, with the Old Testament, with the Word of God, and with displays of power. So this group of scribes would have at least seen, seemed to this group of nine disciples no big deal. Maybe a, an encounter, but they were bold enough to handle it, or so they thought. And a little over a week earlier than this particular situation, Jesus had given them a lengthy exhortation. Hey, don't be afraid of me before men. Don't be fearful. Don't be ashamed. If you're ashamed before me, I'll be ashamed before my Father of you. So that is in their hearts. They're ready to go. So Jesus is coming down. The crowd is is noticing that he's coming back and... um, Surprised at the timing, they start to rush toward Jesus, and yet the nine were already engaged in some sort of debate. No doubt it was a debate about Jesus being the Messiah. I imagine that maybe the nine said something like, look, Jesus is the Messiah. You need to repent and follow him or you'll be judged. To which perhaps the scribes answered, well, if he is the Messiah, don't you think that we would recognize him as spiritual Israel? And don't you think that he would acknowledge us and our righteous place and our nation? Therefore, he can't be the Messiah. They were always saying that. If he doesn't acknowledge our spirituality and we as leaders don't recognize him as the Messiah, then he can't be the Messiah. And maybe the nine responded to that by saying, well, what about his power? What about his power? Haven't you seen his displays of power? It's undeniable. And he has bestowed that power on the inner circle of disciples, those of us who are right here. And I can imagine that maybe even the scribes then responded with, well, if your power is from heaven and not from Satan, which they'd always been accusing Jesus and the disciples of, if your power is not from Satan but is from heaven, then why don't you help this father and his boy? Right now, right here. Perhaps that's how the debate got started. Or maybe they'd already tried to heal. Maybe the father came to them, you're Jesus' disciples, can you heal my boy? And in failing to do so, maybe the scribes said, you're frauds. 
Clearly the debate is about Jesus being the Messiah, but it's clearly about the powerlessness of the disciples. Luke 9, 38, a man from the crowd shouted, saying, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. He talks about how the spirit takes him down to the ground and injures him, and he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. They could not. Now we see how the Jewish leaders had gotten their upper hand in the debate. And no doubt by now, the scribes are publicly discrediting the disciples and Jesus and embarrassing them in front of this huge multitude because they couldn't heal this father's possessed son and their own failure to invoke God's power. The text in the other two gospels literally says they went back to Jesus and said, why couldn't we do it? So they were even stunned. It's like they set the whole thing up, bring him here, we got this, we can take care of this, and they couldn't do it for reasons we'll see in a bit. But that would have been everything the scribes needed to jump on. You see, your master isn't the Messiah. If he were here, if the Messiah were here, his top men would be able to deal with this power of darkness just like that instantly. And the Nazarene isn't even here. He's abandoned you. He's up on the mountain. He's gone. He's not coming back. How could you promise this father that you could heal him? How could you make attempts and display it in front of this multitude only to end up with more heartbrokenness? What a tragic joke your Messiah is. You call this good news? That's the debate. Mark's gospel says when they came, Jesus was rushed upon by the crowd and he asked them, so what are you discussing with those guys? And before he could get an answer from the crowd, the father jumped in and made the statement, I'm begging you, please look with favor upon my son. So you go from the debate to the demon possession. Here's the, here's the father's truly tragic situation. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Look at him with favor. It's literally the word that means be merciful, be compassionate. Look with him with look upon him with your favor, your mercy, your love, your willingness. Now, we're not told how the son became demon possessed. Jesus asks, according to Mark's gospel, how long has the child been in this condition and the father says from childhood? and that the demon has often, through his years, tried to throw the boy into fire to kill him or to drown him in water. Can you imagine the, the spiritual bondage that is, and torment that is going on in this family? They know it's an evil spirit, probably no doubt because it made itself manifest by name to one degree or another, but from childhood? Disciples had seen stuff like this before. Back in Luke 4 in the synagogue, Capernaum, Jesus dealt with a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And then they had in another chapter of this gospel seen the demon-possessed Gadarens, the two guys on the east side of the Galilee in the land of Gadara, and they were bound with chains and you couldn't keep them in chains and they would break out every night and they would run into the villages and they would hurt people and cut themselves up and it was just absolute defilement. It was seen by the disciples on a number of occasions. 
And by the way, every time you see demon possession in the Scriptures, which seem to be, as we've talked about, very heightened in Jesus' time on the earth, in His incarnation, demon activity just seemed to be at some sort of peak. But whenever you see it, demons are always taking mankind down to the lowest moral level all the time. Every time you peer into biblical cultures, every time you look at church history with pagan cultures across the globe, you see godless nations and godless cultures taken further and further into the wickedness that increases, the defilement of conscience and the mind from childhood. We're not told. We're not told whether the father was worshiping false gods. We're not told that whether the family was steeped in some sort of bizarre false religion that involved occultism or whatever. But we know this, that somehow this family with its children had opened itself up to the influence of Satan through worshiping earthly things. And Satan always causes man to worship himself and by worshiping himself, focus on earthly objects and earthly power and everything that's going to pass away. That's what demons do. In any society that focuses on such things and self-worship and false religion, it can be held in bondage because Satan takes that society and he begins to send it into every possible thing God hates. Shamelessness, the exaltation of perversion, self-injury, internal torment, irrational behavior. All of that increases. You'll eventually see in those kind of cultures people coming under the bondage of vice at massive levels and twisted thinking in the sense that they excuse those vices. Violence and injustice increases. Occultic practices increase. A fixation on communicating with the dead increases. Graveyards and mystical connections with what's beyond the grave begins to increase. False religion starts to come up all over the place. False views of of the scriptures and the counterfeit Christs and all kinds of spirituality that, it, that has no place in the gospel. Lying and deceit becomes the cultural norm. Murder becomes a question of pragmatics. Whenever Satan's involved, there's always more and more arrogant and sophisticated worshipers of man's power and man's intellect and all of the devastated lives of those who've descended into that bondage and that vice. And, and the demons were on high alert when Jesus was on the earth, and so you saw this violent reaction happen to those who'd been steeped in such pagan worship. Such was the terrible condition of this family and this boy. Notice the physical bondage, verse 39, his spirit seizes him, it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth, only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. Matthew 17 says that the demon tried to burn the boy, drown the boy. Mark's gospel says that his muscles seize up, his tongue seizes up, everything's clenched, he's completely controlled. This is no physiological, uh, medically, medical pathology to some seizure. This is, of course, Demonic. Why do we know that? Because whenever there were direct confrontations, the boy went into further violent reactions by the demon's control. And the few times, the father says, the few times that the demon has stopped the onslaught and departed, he says it exits by injuring the boy. 
mauling him. Literally, the verb means to beat severely. He beats him severely and causing severe injury as he goes. Wherever the demon gets called to in this particular account, he always comes back and torments the boy and his family. But when he goes, wherever he goes, for whatever reason he goes, he makes sure there's a massive service charge at the tail end. A horrible situation. The text says he suddenly screams. He's just in absolute agony. That's the debate. That's the demon possession. Note the disciples' failure, verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. It's interesting. Matthew includes the term heal. They had no power to heal. All the texts include this. That is the, the material point of this narrative as it hones in on the problem. All the texts include this, this particular issue. They had no power to do it. And he uses the same word for power that the New Testament uses in the apostolic gift of casting out demons, the gift of powers. They, they had been granted this by Jesus Christ for this particular time until the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant came and Christians are protected by the possession of the Holy Spirit within each believer. But as pagan nations around there were battling such evil influence, there was this great gift of powers given to the apostles and the 70 associates of the apostles still in existence here by the disciples. They were to be trained and sent out conquering evil as a demonstration of the power of God and therefore Jesus' truth when he says he's the Messiah. That was it. What a tragic line here. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not, implying that they tried several times. The disciples failed. And so it elicits a response from Jesus. We'll just call it the devastating critique. And this is spontaneous, out of the righteousness of Christ's own heart, and his disdain for unbelief. Jesus answered, your text may say answered, but it literally is the term replied. He's replying to the man. He's replying to this father and his family's plight. He's replying in answer to the actual conditions given, and he's replying to verse 40 that the disciples could not do it. Jesus replied directly to that situation with these words, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Sound familiar? I mean, he's borrowing language from Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. Paul would later borrow that language in Philippians 2 when he says, don't, don't do anything in your life by grumbling and disputing with God. Don't do that. I mean, surely don't grumble with other people. We, we sometimes apply the verse that way. But Philippians 2.14 means don't dispute with God. Don't doubt God. Believe him. Trust him so that you can be a light in the midst of a twisted and perverted and unbelieving generation. Same language. Paul uses it in Philippians 2. Here, Jesus pulls Moses' song forward and says this very thing. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. This is when God grieves most. This is when he grieves most. 
You have a situation, you, you've got the debate, you've got the father's own hopelessness, you've got the son's bondage. Piled on that, you have the scribe's arrogance, and you have the disciple's inability to heal the boy. And all of it results in this deep grief that wells up inside the Lord, and he responds in this outburst of righteous frustration. And he says, you faithless generation, no faith, no trust in me, in my words. Why? The, the term perverted in your translations is the term for twisted, and it's, it's in a verb form here that means that's why they're unbelieving, because their minds have been twisted. Their truth has been twisted in them. They've allowed it to become distorted. Their understanding has become corrupted. So being deceived, they have no faith. They can't see Christ for who he is, won't see Christ for who he is. They've gone down into the tight spiral of darkened understanding and blindness. They don't see Christ's worthiness. They don't see his love, his mercy, his power. All they can do is deny Jesus. And he speaks a rebuke here. <laughs> he uses the word generation, you perverted and twisted generation. Clearly, he, he is sweeping up the generation there that while Jesus is on the earth, giving the greatest revelation of the Father you could possibly give, how is it that this crowd could be at the bottom of the hill and still not believe? How is it that they could be hardening their hearts? And how is it that many of them, no doubt Jesus knew their hearts, many of them were believing the scribe's argument and discrediting the nine? But the Lord is also reacting to all the examples of unbelief here. I'll just list four of them for you. First, there's the unbelief of the crowd. The unbelief of the crowd. They hadn't yet believed. They're always looking for miracles. They're always coming back the next day. They waited for Jesus to come off the mountain. And the other gospels say they marveled when they saw him. Luke mentions that here. They're, they're marveling. They rush up to Jesus because, wow, look at the timing. The disciples couldn't heal the boy. The scribes are getting the upper hand in the debate. I'm not sure who to believe, and look, look who shows up on the scene, the Nazarene. Wow, the timing. And in the surprise of the timing, they come rushing over to him. But you know what they're doing? In their heart of hearts as a generation, they're just saying, show us another sign, convince us again. You know, I'm not quite convinced. Can you do another thing? I want to be able to tell my friends, I was there. I was at the show. Jesus kept saying to them all the time, look, I fed you a meal from one lunch miraculously and you came back the next day and you wanted another meal. What is with your hearts? Embrace me. Oh, give us the bread that you say we'll never hunger again. It's not bread. It's not actual bread. It's me. I'm giving you me. How come you won't take me? You want a loaf of real bread? Embrace me. He's grieved that the crowd isn't yet believing. And he's also grieving at the unbelief of this stricken family. I mean, a father whose pagan home life had contributed to this family's unbelief and to his son's destruction, maybe even a direct reason for his son to go flying off into occultism and false religion. We're not told that, but how does a child get to that point from his childhood? And yet, up to this point, the father hasn't believed. Well, he's just wanted his son healed, but he hasn't reached out to God in real faith until this moment where there's some softening happening. It's a grief. 
Why has he waited this long? Why has this child had to live with all this torment for so many years? And what a mercy that God hasn't allowed the child to die in the fire or be drowned by the demons. What a mercy from God. You know, the Lord is like that. He's going to display his power and mercy right here and shut down everybody's arguments and he's going to do it with the pathetic life of this possessed boy. And he's even going to rescue the boy. But he's grieving. How could you get this far as a family? How many relatives have you destroyed? How many gospel presentations did you hear from, from the Old Testament prophets read in your midst? Maybe if you lived in a pagan family, how many times was God's people right here around you? For generations, Israel has been alive and preserved by God's power, and you didn't listen to a word of it, and for generations, your families worshiped false gods. How could that be? It's unbelief. And he's certainly expressing his grief over the unbelief and perversion of the, of the scribes, for sure. They were in love with the idea of their own righteousness. What a terrible unbelief. The very sin of Adam, I know what I need. I know I can take care of myself. I don't need to follow your parameters. I don't need to stay behind your limits. I don't need to trust your character that you know what's best for me. You're my creator, but I, I can kind of go my own way. Same thing. Generations later, here are the scribes. I'm righteous enough. I can climb to you. Hey, if you don't acknowledge us, I don't care what kind of power this yokel displays. If he doesn't acknowledge us, you're nothing. What a grief to Jesus. No wonder he stood over Jerusalem and just wept. How often I would have gathered you like my little chicks as a mother hen, but you refused me. But you know what grieves him most here? He's dealing with the unbelief of the disciples. You say, how do you mean? Matthew's gospel records that the disciples came to Jesus privately after he healed the boy. And this is what they said. Why couldn't we drive it out? What happened? We got humiliated back there. You know, you went to the mountain. I guess you took all the power there. We, we got humiliated. How come we couldn't drive it out? You know what Jesus said? Because of the poverty of your faith. Your translation says littleness. I just think that's a translator's attempt to kind of soften it a bit. The term literally means faithlessness or poverty or imperfection. Jesus was grief was grief-filled in his response because the disciples knew better. They walked with him. They knew he was the Messiah. And even still, there were components that they began to focus on and it weakened their communion with him. Weakened them. And if I could just say for a moment, this ought to be bringing similar implications to you and I. How many times could the Lord say? Though we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ living within us, how many times could he say? Where's your faith? You know, the reason that you can't overcome the fear of the powers of darkness, the reason you fear what's happening in our culture and the encroachment of evil, the reason that, un that unsettles you to the point where you actually start to doubt my goodness and my character and my sovereignty and that I have control is because you, 
you are focusing on that rather than my worthiness and who I am and my word. You're listening to your mind and your imagination and your heart rather than bringing that into subjection to the word of God and you're starting to fear the powers of darkness just like the disciples did here. They feared the powers of darkness. Furthermore, they feared religious persecution. I mean, the scribes, suddenly the scribes had the upper hand. And instead of the disciples, when they first couldn't do it, instead of them going right to their knees in front of the crowd and saying, hold on, we couldn't do it, but it's not God's fault, it's not the Messiah's fault, it's not because the power isn't there, and it's not because the powers of darkness are too great, or that these scribes are telling the truth. I'll tell you why we couldn't do it, because we didn't get on our knees. We're not believing the Savior, whom we follow every day all the way to the cross if necessary. We say we're his followers and we believe him. If they had dropped to their knees right then, contest over. You say, how do you know that? Because of what Jesus says. When they said in Matthew, how come we couldn't cast it out? He said, this kind only comes out by prayer and self-discipline, prayer and self-control. What does he mean by that? He said prayer and fasting. Fasting in their ceremonial Jewish world was a way to curb your comforts and the ease of the comforts of life in order to focus on a spiritual problem in prayer, intense prayer. And so they had failed to pray in faith. They'd relied on their own, what, personal boldness? Arrogance, pride, lack of faith, they'd relied on all of that and suddenly they were found wanting and they, rely, they, they failed to nurture self-control in that faith and here they were without the faith necessary. In fact, it's even true that they failed to prepare or to be prepared spiritually for the mission because you remember they said to Jesus at the end of this text, <clears throat> or he says to them, let these words sink into your ears, verse 44, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Notice verse 45. They didn't understand the statement. It was concealed from them so they wouldn't perceive it and they were afraid to ask about the statement. What does that mean it was concealed from them? It was clearly that they were not prepared to receive such a statement. Their faithlessness had turned them in so, into immature disciples in the moment. And when Jesus said, look, I know you're thinking about the glory that Peter, James, and John just experienced, and I know that I've just healed this boy, and so you're thinking about that, but I'm telling you, though I can deliver from darkness, I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of men. You guys are getting off mission. You're thinking military might. You're trying to argue with the scribes that I will come to Jerusalem and be the military leader that takes them down that takes Rome down. That's what you're trying to argue. No wonder you couldn't do what you should have been able to do. You're not thinking about me. You're not thinking about the mission that I'm on. You're not thinking about what I have to do. You're all fearful about assessing life the way you want to assess it. And so, in a, in a strange irony, he has to keep the hard truth from them in this moment so it doesn't crush the last little moment of faith they have. It's a mercy on Christ's part to conceal the real implications of that truth, but at the same time, he's saying to them, you're like little children. It's like Paul in 1 Corinthians. I had to give you milk. I wanted to give you meat, but you weren't ready for it. You're like spiritual babies. That's right. What a devastating critique. Notice the powerful deliverance, and we're done. 
bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, look at the demon, verse 42. He slammed the boy to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. Those are two words that mean he convulsed him into a convulsion. Basically, the boy's body just completely went out of control as he was slammed to the ground to injure him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he went into eight months rehab. No. And healed the boy and gave him back to his father just like that. This is so rich. Mark's gospel tells us that the man said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have pity on us. And you know what Jesus' answer was? If I can do it. That's what he said. If I'm able. He said, all things are possible if you, what? If you believe. And you know what this precious father said at that moment? I believe but you got to help my unbelief. Man, I resonate with that. The disciples should have been saying that. Lord, I, uh, we believe. Help our unbelief. Man, we totally blew this. We blew it because we, f- we were afraid of the world. We blew this because we were afraid of, righteous, uh, of religious persecution. We blew this because we weren't preparing our hearts. We weren't prayerful. We, we were into the comforts of life. We sat down here complaining in a circle because you went up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John. We're filled with jealousy. I mean, they're about to get into an argument in just a little bit about who's the greatest. Can you imagine? They should have been like this father. I, I, okay, I, I believe you. Help my unbelief. Can you imagine the look in the Lord's face? If I'm able? That is to say, I'm able. I'm worthy. Just believe me, and I'll, I'll tackle your issues. I'm not going to keep you from physical harm. That's, that's this fallen world. It's passing away. You're gonna, they could take your head off. Who cares about that? When, when I'm in charge of your soul... I'm worthy. He healed the boy, gave him back to his father. You know what? Instant healing, because Jesus was always in perfect communion with his father. Not a moment of doubt about God's goodness, not a moment about his father's uh, graciousness, his mercy, his power, not a moment. Jesus, submitting to the Holy Spirit, exercised that same power in the moment. It is an instantaneous healing. It is also a complete healing. Undeniable divine power, everybody understood it. They were amazed at the greatness of God. Literally, the term which Luke is using deliberately here to connect it with the experience on the mountain, the majesty of God was on display. And it was a merciful act because he gave him back to his father, you know, some chapters earlier when Jesus was coming into the town of Nain, John's gospel says that there was a funeral coming out. There was a mother weeping and all the mourners. And he just goes over to the casket. He raises up the boy and gives the boy back to his mother. Same phrase here. He heals the boy and gives the boy back to his father. Remember, from childhood this boy has been tormented. And he is completely healed, given back to his father. Indescribable. Beloved, what's the lesson to the scribes? Jesus is the Messiah. You better be terrified. Your little arguments that the 
that the disciples have no power, therefore their Messiah, their leader, their follower is no Messiah, and he has no power. Now what are you going to do? I just commanded the demon, he's out, the boy's healed, it's over. That's a lesson to the scribes. And by the way, do you see them anywhere? What happened to their entourage at the high end of the debate? You know, they're already on their way out of there. They just want to kill him. Their hearts are hardened. What's the lesson to the crowd? Stop looking for signs and look to Jesus alone. He is your only hope. What's the lesson to this father and his son? Go back to all your family, the ones you led into paganism, the ones that are in false worship, and just preach that Jesus has power. He is the Messiah. He is the only Savior. You must believe in him. And you know the lesson to the disciples. It's the same lesson to you and to me. We must pray and look to Jesus and his words, and we must ask him to strengthen our faith and help our unbelief. We must run from unbelief as fast and hard as we can. We must run toward a life of faith as fast and hard as we can. You must. No wonder that when what, something comes in your life, some circumstance, and you are shaken to the core, and you come out of that circumstance, and you say, why don't I believe? Well, it's not just because we're weak, but some of it is our own sinful fear that we nurture and our neglect neglect of looking to Christ and seeing him grow our faith making it strong a root a stalk robust only when we believe him and obey his words that's when you can overcome Jesus said look you didn't do it because of the littleness of your faith but if you had faith like a mustard seed you could say to this mountain move and it'll move he was using hyperbolic metaphor to say, look, the impossible can be done. The spiritually impossible, you can overcome sin. You think temptation is too strong? You're mistaken. Even mustard seed size, genuine faith can overpower anything in the kingdom of darkness can throw at you. Moses will go on at the end of that song and say, in, in so many words, as he gets to the end of his song, that God is worthy of our trust. And the generation that was unbelieving that came before were to reject that and get away from that, run from it. He's worthy. And so we say to the Lord Jesus, I believe. But help my unbelief. Let me run from it. Not fear. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for the grace of these accounts of the Lord's power, his kindness, his mercy, the sweetness of this young child and how you had said to your disciples to let the truth sink into their ears, to be placed in there in a settled way that it might become a conviction. Lord, that's what we want today. We want this account and your reproof to sink deeply into our hearts. We know how weak our faith is. Indeed, we might be on record one of the most featherweight generations when it comes to believing your word. 
And this shouldn't be because we have access to more truth than we've ever had. Help us not to throw up disputes and complaints, but to trust you. You're worthy to believe you even when everything seems against us. And may we not in any way dishonor you by believing lies, but may we come to you in dependent prayer and run from the comforts of this life should you take them from us. May we never set our heart on things this earth, but to set our minds on things above and while we do our business in this earth to be proclaimers of power in you, power alone to have sin forgiven because you paid for it on the cross, power alone to overcome the weaknesses of our hearts and minds and our old nature, power alone to honor you with our life. Make us strong in our faith, Lord. And we ask this for your honor, your exaltation, and your glory in every way. Amen.